Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Today, I wanted to talk to you about Adobe Premiere. I just yesterday talked about Adobe Final Cut 10.4 and some of the cool 360 editing things that you can do with it. Uh, I guess Adobe's getting into it pretty pretty good and really with a lot of attrition that's been happening on the Apple side. And I think a couple days ago I talked about the new MacBook Pros that have come out. That's sort of the only Pro is, uh, does it matter? I don't know. I don't think a lot of Pros are really liking some of the stuff that Apple's doing. So to cut to the chase of it, they're moving over to PC stuff, and a lot of that hardware is really quite excellent. A lot of those video editing rigs are, are really very capable uh, outside of, like, you know, what, the Mac Pro. What are you going to do with that now? It's it's not up to, or it's not state-of-the-art at least. And so, you know, as fast as the world is moving, it's really, uh, I don't know, it's, uh, it's at Apple's fault to lose it like this. So with a lot of the, with a lot of the, uh, I guess, diminishing effects that came about in uh, Final Cut 10.4, or, well, in Final Cut 10.0, when they switched over to, I guess, what was it, you know, like the, the Final Cut Studio system. Do you remember that? In like 2010, they kind of switched up to Final Cut X or Final Cut 10. Now we're at, you know, 10.4, obviously. Um, but when they did that, I think a lot of people were thinking, oh, well, this is like, they made it like iMovie. I don't know if that was totally true. I used it for a lot of stuff. And I don't know, it was still hard for me to use, I guess, but... Uh, but they, they, there's a lot of editors that I guess at that point in time decided that for a lot of their professional editing needs, they really couldn't have some tool that was sort of uh, rolling over features like that in a way that wasn't consistent for their needs. So I think at that time, a lot of editing studios tried to switch over to uh, people that were cross-trained in Adobe Premiere. And that's been you know, an editing software that's been uh, in, uh, in professional use probably pretty directly for like the last decade for a lot of video production needs. So it's kind of interesting. And they've definitely been keeping up with a lot of the changes. I think Adobe's been doing it maybe even a little faster than Final Cut or for some of the other companies. Like if they had 360 editing earlier on. I think they've had uh, you know better motion graphics and after effects for, for a longer amount of time than well, or they're just working at a higher level, and I think it's it's a higher level of proficiency with some of the stuff that they're able to get done. So I've been really interested in it, but uh, but, but I don't know. It's interesting to, to talk about to kind of uh, separate some of the differences. I'm definitely invested in the Final Cut system, so I'll probably be staying there for just the little rinky-dink YouTube cuts that I make. Who needs Final Cut <laughs> for that or Adobe Premiere for that matter? But. You can see more of my work at billynewmanphoto.com. You can check out some of my photo books on Amazon. I think you can look up uh, Billy Newman under the authors section there and see uh, some of the photo books on film, on the desert, on surrealism, on camping. Some cool stuff over there. Finished up that uh, that camping trip I was doing up there the mountain creek there in the cascades uh, a couple days ago what was that like wednesday i think it was like uh maybe like tuesday tuesday night to wednesday morning i think that was the super moon that was coming up that night if i remember right and, uh, and that was pretty cool it was cool to see the full moon up there and they always talk about the super moon which is kind of a I don't know, it's a little bit of a misnomer, but it, it's cool to see, too. I think they talk about it happening every six months or so. Really, it's just kind of the oscillation of a bit of the eccentricities in the orbit of the moon that make it, I think, about 25,000 miles closer at its maximum, and then maybe about 25,000 miles further away at its distant maximum. 
but uh, I think it's really only like a little bit of a sliver larger than it normally would be. If you notice, though, it's a thing I learned way back, and I think that they they show it in a scene in Apollo 13, but if you put your hand all the way out and you put your thumb up, at all times you're able to cover the entire full moon just with your thumbnail. It's pretty wild. But you got kind of always like visualize the moon as being this really big thing in the sky. And really a lot of the time it's uh, it's just as big as your thumbnail at, at arm's reach, which is kind of a trip. But it was kind of a, it was cool to see the super moon that night. It was really bright. It was cool uh, to kind of watch around and uh, kind of look at how it was illuminating the forest and the trees and the mountains and stuff around me. That was kind of nice to see. Cold that night though. Man, I tell you. So I have a 15 degree sleeping bag and... That's great. 15 degrees is fine. Um, but And 15 degrees really is, is uh, more than adequate for most circumstances that I end up being in during the summertime um, where it's, I don't know, it's just not too big of a concern about how cold it gets. But when it says 15 degrees, it really means you're going to be comfortable down to somewhere around 35 degrees but anywhere under 30 degrees is a pretty uncomfortable experience i think it means you're going to stay alive until it's about 15 degrees so if it were me again buying something for maybe i don't know a more heavy three season uh, camping experience most of the time probably a lot of the nights out that i do even though i like to go at all times of year, it seems like the majority of nights I go out are during the summer months or, you know, during like pretty fair weather uh, seasons. Um, but if I were going to buy again, which I'm, I'm going to try and get like a two or three sleeping bag system going. Um, if I was going to buy again, I'd probably get a zero degree or maybe a negative 15 degree. You know, I could really use the warmth because, man, what I noticed is even if it was just a little bit down to what would have been probably maybe, I don't know, 29 or something like that. It was, you know, it was a bit below freezing. Who knows how, how cold it really was. It was only like an elevation of 2,500 feet. And it was a canyon. I thought it was a clear night, but I thought it would be relatively sheltered. And yeah, it was a lot of, it was a lot of ice on my window when I woke up and it was a cold, cold night to uh, sit through too. So, um, so yeah, that 15 degree bag was, uh, was just holding up out there. Uh, but yeah, if I was going to go again, I think they have like a zero degree bag. And then down below that, they have like a negative 15 and like maybe like a negative 30 degree bag. Negative 30 sounds like a, a real warm uh, like down bag. So I think mine's a synthetic bag. They talk about this sometimes where there's like differences in the, the thermal insulation qualities of the material that your sleeping bag is made out of. And I think that um, the for... It was it was an improvement actually, you know, above what I don't know, whatever cotton we were using. For a while, they were using uh, wool stuff, which was pretty smart. That that works really well to to be an insulating material, and it doesn't, uh, or it works well with moisture and stuff and all the other things we know about. Merino wool is really cool. Everybody knows about that kind of stuff. But um, but we we had like you know those really terrible big cotton sleeping bags way back. Those were rough. They'd, and I don't know if they were really even that insulating. Then they switched over to those synthetic materials, um, which is probably all oil-based. Does that sound right? Like a petroleum-based uh, like plastics product that was made out of synthetics. I think that's how they spin up a lot of those uh, those 
well, I don't know, just those synthetic types of materials that they're making these nylons out of. Um, so I think that was how a lot of this uh, this synthetic stuff had been made. Um, but really, I think what they, they talk about being the superior insulator is uh, down. And that's what I'd hope to try and find as a, another zero degree or, or negative 15 degree sleeping bag would be um, a negative 15 degree down bag, um, which is normally a bit more expensive you know when you're looking around at the price points for these different sleeping bags if you're uh, trying to get into some colder weather camping stuff what you're going to find is that those name brand or you know or not even name brand necessarily but just a a, uh, a bespoke manufacturer for a quality technical outdoors product is going to be very expensive uh, and so that's where you're going to find i don't know well you know three three ninety nine for a sleeping bag two ninety nine Four ninety nine, six ninety nine. I've seen like a lot of pretty expensive prices out there. I think Nemo makes some bags that are looking pretty cool that I've seen uh, recommended a few times. I've heard of Big Agnes. They make tents most of the time, though, right? They're a tent company, aren't they? Yeah. Stone Glacier is one that I keep uh, hearing kind of pop up here and there now um, for some tents. Marmot, I think, has some bags. Um, REI is, uh, is you know... Uh, a, a retailer of recreational equipment. Uh, they're closed right now, though, so I don't even know if you could get an order from anyone like that. But uh, but they have some bags. I think that's where my synthetic bag was from uh, that I've been using for the last I don't know seven years or so. Uh, so that's it's been fine. But I also uh, tested out the sleeping mat I got. I got a new uh, Thermarest sleeping mat. I know, big news. It's pretty exciting, guys. Stay tuned. Uh, it's uh um, yeah, it's a, it's a larger sleeping mat than I had before, but it's a, it's a coated one with the, I think it's kind of like, I don't know if it's ballistic nylon, but it's that nylon coating over it. So it's not just the, the rubber mat at the base of it. Uh, so you can throw it on the ground or on the, I don't know, semi abrasive materials that it would be outside and it's working great. I think it's about one inch thick or so. It's about 25 inches wide at the shoulder point. And it's long enough to uh, fit my whole body, which is uh, probably a new one for me. So, yeah, I got a solid camp mat. I think for the last, like, three years I've been sleeping on one that goes flat about four hours after you start sleeping. So uh, that's kind of nice to swap out. I don't know why I put up with it for so long, really. Shouldn't do that. Uh, Sleep is, like, one of the best things you can get. You know, if you can figure out just, like, a couple easy things to take care of when you're out camping or out in the woods and stuff it's it's probably sleep i mean that's like the thing that takes you know and it's frustrating too because when like even this last one i'm talking about didn't sleep very well way too cold uh part of it you know enough shelter and uh, enough stuff that was uh kind of comfortable but really as it is yeah it's like oh i need to i need to figure out a couple other extra things to kind of throw in there but yeah there's just a couple things you can figure out when you're going camping like how to stay warm or how to be comfortable when uh you do go or like when you are sleeping is like one of the most important and most, I don't know, effective things you can do to kind of improve the way that a trip goes. Cause like, uh, yeah, I can be like, I don't know, it can be brutal the next day if you don't get any sleep the night before, which is how probably the first half dozen camping trips of the year, like, you know, those first half dozen or so overnights of the year, I'm just always kind of groggy and like, Oh, why do I have to get up right now? Which is sort of how it was Wednesday morning when I woke up, I, uh, I popped up and uh, I think it was probably about 5 a.m. or so that I that I got up. I think it was just about first light. 
the sun hadn't come up yet, but uh, but there's a little bit of, of light up in the sky, and the stars were um, were kind of washed out by the blue sky. Uh, so I hopped up, and uh, the fire was out. I think from the night before, like I was mentioning, how those uh, the sticks had worn out and the coals had started burning down. Even I think by the time I was near the end of my last podcast, uh, so I, I uh, hopped out, and the the back windows were clear. There wasn't any frost on it, but the front window, the windshield, was iced over pretty hard. Really, I mean, it looked like it was you know like coated in water and then froze over solid. So it wasn't even just kind of like a, a fluffy bit of white frost or something that had built up on it through fog it just looked like a, a hard coating of of just an ice sheet over the windshield so i thought oh great i don't have an ice scraper or something with me i was thinking ah it's may you know who needs an ice scraper i'm taking a sip of coffee so yeah i don't know i grabbed uh, a box <laughs> i think it was a piece of cardboard out of the back that i could kind of flex around a bit Threw that over the windshield, tried to run the truck for a bit, tried to warm it up. It took a while, too. But, uh, yeah, scraped off some ice, scraped off a hole big enough to kind of get started on the drive and then um, uh, prepped to take off. But, yeah, I took some photos and stuff around the campsite for a bit first in the morning. Nice draw in the valley, like I was talking about, that goes up to that uh, that ridge point that you can kind of see off in the distance. And uh, I think I could see, like, the, the fire from the smoke. Or the smoke from the fire of the neighboring campers over there. I don't know if I'd mentioned it. Well, yeah, I, I definitely did in the last one. How they were they're kind of doing Brodies out in the on the road around sunset. I think I got a little clip of it on video. But yeah, it's like four or five of them in these uh, kind of beater late '90s four by four trucks doing spins out in the dirt roads. So looks fun i don't know but they were uh, i think getting getting the fire going and stuff in the morning too or whatever they had going from the night before but you can see a plume of it coming up uh from the the area they would have been camping in over by the uh the creek bed downhill and yeah it was cool uh, i took some photos and stuff that morning walked around kind of cleaned up the camp a little bit uh put the fire stuff out and jumped in the truck uh had that little hole in the ice to see through and then yeah, popped on a podcast and cruised down the road. And so what I was trying to do was uh, was take off down to a couple other spots along the creek uh, while it was still morning and then head down ultimately to um, the area where the lake started to build up. And so kind of how it works is like uh, it kind of flows down the creek and then there's a dam at a point ultimately. And then back right behind the dam is a reservoir where that creek is kind of built up. And I guess now is yeah a body of water out there. So I uh, drove down a ways and took some photographs of the creek and the morning light and some of the water and stuff coming through. I really like that kind of effect of the, the sort of early spring kind of fresh snow melt mountain creek stuff that uh, uh, just sort of looks really crisp and uh, forested and natural. And then I came down a ways further to a bridge that kind of cuts across a span of the creek as it starts to sort of widen out into the reservoir area. And it looks like, uh, you know, a big stretch of calm water out on the edge of the, the bridge where I think two different groups that were doing some fishing in the morning. And yeah, it seems like people are still out. It was a busy area up there. It was uh, still, still definitely a pretty fully populated set of people, you know, even during this lockdown period, there's a bunch of people out there hanging out and fishing. I think it was two different different groups at two maybe they were uh, they were all kind of connected but yeah they were they were out there with a couple lines over the bridge and they were uh, picking up a couple things i think so I, I saw a lady that was pulling up in a little 
a little blue kayak to the ramp on the first day and on her what is that thing you know when you you run it through the, the gilling you got the fish and stuff anyway she pulled up uh, with like I don't know, it was like four or five trout or something on her um on her in her kayak, I don't know. That's where I'll leave it, I guess. But uh, she pulled up with four or five trout, so I figured these guys, these guys were uh, doing a, a little bit of trout fishing out there, uh, which sounds fun. It's a nice, clear, crisp morning and stuff, like I was saying. So uh, yeah, it sounds like it'd be nice to be out there for a couple hours doing some fishing. Um, and yeah, it looked like they were they were up to it. They were getting a, a couple things. It was cool too. I saw an osprey that uh, that took off. I think over the the lake area just at that time, and uh, would kind of like pull up at certain spots over the water kind of back flap to hold in the same spot and look underwater and see if there was something and then, I don't know, didn't see enough or didn't see a a prime opportunity and then it would kind of swoop off and then take off to a different section of the lake and do it again. So I watched that about three or four times. Tried to take a couple pictures of the area, which are nice too. I like the the photographs that I got that morning. It's got a a nice nice look to it. Really, you know, a lot of the time the the photographs really look uh, a lot better when you just select the right time of day to be somewhere. Uh, which, you know, is obvious, but just the types of colors and the, the types of saturation and dynamics that you get and the, the look of a pretty simple, you know, set of trees and water, it just comes off a lot better when it's, uh, it's just the right type of light. It's really amazing, too, to kind of see what differences it makes when it's a clouded day or a sunny day or a morning or an evening or midday. Really, it seems like the dynamics of the light change so much. You can get like a totally different look in the photo, um, which is always kind of interesting to pay attention to and uh, sort of see how that how that goes, what changes about it, and um, and sort of how that affects the photographs that you're making. I mean, you can have you know something cool at any time of day, but it's kind of cool to figure out uh, how it works for you or how it works or what I'm trying to do is how how to figure out how it, how it works for my photographs and what I'm trying to do, um, which is nice. I don't know. It was cool going out there and uh, and climbing around the creeks and stuff in the morning and taking a couple of photos and watering osprey and going over to the lake area. I was trying to work on similar stuff to what I've done before, but kind of that mirrored look of the really calm water as it spreads across the lake in the morning. And then the reflection of the, the bright blue kind of pre sunlit sky or how is it, you know, like before the sun is actually up over the horizon, there's not a lot of intensity. So it's just kind of a softer blue glow in a lot of ways. And then there's still enough illumination that you can see the greens and the trees and sort of the soft, calm water in the morning before it gets kind of agitated through the rest of the day. So nice uh, kind of peaceful looks to the, the photos and sort of the, the natural stuff that I like to go kind of capture. You know, really ultimately, though, uh, there's some nice stuff up there. And I was really, like, uh, happy to kind of photograph some of the some of what I was looking for, but I was also I was also frustrated in the area too. I think there was a um, there's is a little more choked off than what I normally like. Like uh, there wasn't as many opportunities as I had hoped for. I did try and you know utilize the ones that I found, but there wasn't as many opportunities as I had hoped for for kind of an opened up uh, wide scene that you could uh, set up uh, a landscape photo. And there wasn't a lot of elements to really work with. It was just sort of um, oh you know that's like some rolling hills off to a green hill so <laughs> so sometimes i'm trying to find some stuff that's a little bit more uh dynamic in its look than that uh but it was fun though even as it is anyway uh though i'm trying to i think maybe uh, like i was mentioning on the last one i got stuck and turned around by the snow and i didn't want to have to deal with uh, any of that right now 
but in the next weeks and stuff, I want to get up to Mount Jefferson or uh, Mount Washington or a couple of these other wilderness areas that uh, that have a few uh, kind of visual um, landmarks that would be uh, worth taking an observation of. You can check out more information at BillyNewmanPhoto.com. You can go to BillyNewmanPhoto.com forward slash support if you want to help me out and participate in the value for value model that uh, we're running this podcast with. If uh, you receive some value out of some of the stuff that I was talking about, you're welcome to uh, help me out and send some value my way through the portal at BillyNewmanPhoto.com forward slash support. You can also find more information there about uh, Patreon and the way that I use it. If you're interested or, or feel more comfortable using Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash Billy Newman photo. So I was looking around at different options. I really like a lot of the Nikon stuff, but I also noticed that I, I really like the Nikon stuff. I'll leave it at that. I just noticed that sometimes some of the accessory equipment outside of the, the body that you might buy, I bet some of the the lenses are expensive or they're a little more expensive than maybe some of the commensurate lenses that might be available over on Canon. And I remember back in college, someone was mentioning to me that uh, they were going to switch from Nikon over to Canon because Canon was a bigger company. I don't know if this is really a a reason or not. It was interesting logic though uh, to kind of think through at the time, but that Canon was a larger company selling more lenses, making more cameras, making more equipment. And so they had more resources, more staff, more designers working on cameras, building cameras, and uh, doing research and development to kind of bring that that forward. And I think even maybe now that's still perhaps true. Like if you if you look at some of the technologies in Nikon versus Canon, like um, or just kind of to take a base idea of it, though I love Nikon stuff a lot, but if you were to take like the D5, I think that's a 20 megapixel sensor. Uh, whereas in if you were to look at the newer Nike or pardon me Canon 5D Mark IV, that's I think like a 31, 36. I don't know. It's it's up there in the 30. Maybe I think it's a 30 megapixel camera, and I think perhaps the 5D Mark III is a 23 megapixel camera. Um, so it was interesting just kind of noticing a couple of those things. Now I understand that there's benefits to the lower megapixel rating for some of the low light performance that you get at high ISOs, and I think that's maybe sometimes where. Uh, Nikon performs well, but then there's also Sony who's producing 42 megapixel cameras and they're doing incredible things in low light, but also even better stuff with the A7S, which I think is the the version of the camera that's specifically around some of the higher end video features. And I think it's a 12 megapixel camera that does incredible stuff in low light, like almost at like, you know, 100,000 ISO. You can get really amazing low light images and low light video. Um, so it's interesting how, how that, that kind of sensor technology works. Um, but all that being said, it's just interesting that for a long time, even way back in history, like to the beginning of the, the digital SLR, uh, I think Canon was way ahead in what they were producing uh, as far as their sensors go and what they were able to produce like in megapixels uh, or in uh, fidelity of an image. I think they had uh, they had a... What was the first one? I think Nikon did not have a full-frame digital SLR until the Nikon D3 uh, came out, which was a fantastic camera, and I had that one also as a as a used camera that I bought later. Loved the D3. 
Um, but it was interesting that, uh, that yeah, like they didn't have a, a full frame DSLR camera option until 2007, I think, when that came out. Whereas on the Canon side, I think the the EOS 1D, the 1DS, is that right? I think it was the 1DS was the first um, was the first full frame camera produced by Canon. And that was way back. And I think that was still like around 8 megapixels or maybe 10 megapixels for the Mark II in that. But they had, they had some technology that was just far more advanced for the time of 2002, 2003, 2004 than what Canon had going on. Or, pardon me, what <laughs> Nikon had. You, you know what I mean, right? So anyway, that fast forwards to, uh, to me in fall of 2018. I'm looking around for uh, another camera purchase because uh, I was going to be moving and I was going to be taking a job where I was, I was going to be working every day doing family portrait photography and a lot of like wedding photography stuff too where I needed to depend on the memory card system that would be in the camera where like on the Sony side, like I had mentioned before, uh, there were some limitations to it. And one of the other limitations was that it, it only accepted SD cards. Uh, which are uh, now I'm actually kind of learning it are fine. You know, you can use an SD card for just about anything. But I also liked the opportunity uh, or the option to have a compact flash card or maybe it's a USM now. I'm not USM, USD. That's a dollar. I'm not sure. But uh, the compact flash card system that uh, that goes in, I always felt that was like a little bit more professional when you put that in. Uh, and I just wanted like more memory options. So with the, I think the 5D Mark III that I decided to pick up used uh, that had the, that had the, the compact flash slot and it also had the SD card slot and you had the ability to record 1080p video and you had the ability to take photographs you had the ability to do uh, like high frame rate burst series for photographs and it just seemed like uh, I don't know it seemed like it was a great workhorse camera the, the 5D series and I think that's what people have been talking about even since like the 5D Mark II when they announced the, the HD video recording features on DSLRs uh, so I think that and even before that, you know, it was just it was one of the top top used cameras for wedding photographers and stuff. So for me, I was trying to find something that would be like a good workhorse camera where I could always kind of count on it and the battery system and the memory card and the lens arrangement that I would be available to me that I could really just be hammering away on frames and uh, and then be bringing those in, editing them and then kind of delivering them to clients in a pretty fast manner. So I thought that would be something that would help me out. Um, and I, I think I was right. I think it was a good choice. Though there are fantastic options with like the A7 Mark III or the A7 III and the A7R III. I think both of those have kind of solved a lot of those issues that I've been talking about where they've adjusted the the battery system and they've adjusted the um, just some of the, the blackout problems that I was talking about before. But um, but I was happy to switch over to the Canon side of it. Uh, I think also because of that reason I was talking about too, where yeah, no blackout, and you, I really like being able to use the through-the-lens uh, viewfinder of the SLR as opposed to the, the digital SLR or just looking at it on the screen. Um, so, I don't know, all those reasons were kind of why I wanted to get back to the the, the DSLR system instead of the uh, the interchangeable lens camera system. Um, but it was great. So, uh, so back, I think, in September, I uh, I was looking around a lot. I, I sold the A7R off, and then I was trying to hunt around for uh, options for me to get a well-priced uh, Canon 5D Mark III. And then I also bought one for Marina, so she had a 5D Mark III body and then we could kind of share lenses for it too so i wanted to get up and running um 
And I wanted to talk about like some of the lens stuff that I was interested in too. It's interesting kind of switching over to Canon now, uh, just kind of seeing, you know, what's available and what's available in the used market, which for me and for, you know, someone that doesn't want to spend a ton of stuff getting a pretty high level, professional level uh, set of photography equipment, it's interesting to kind of uh, comb around through the used market and figure out good pieces to use. I think almost every camera system I've ever had has been something that I've made a purchase of off of the used marketplace in some manner. You know, I, I haven't bought a new film camera, that's for sure. Um, so it was interesting kind of uh, trying to figure that out a little bit. And I've always had really good luck with it. I hear some bad stories out there, but really it seems like a lot of photographers take pretty good care of their, their camera equipment uh, in a way that it at least seems really quite usable for me still when I end up with it at some point. And I save a ton of money doing it too. And I don't have to deal with the heavy depreciation because like by the time I, I end up wanting to sell it, it really hasn't moved that much in the marketplace. Uh, a lot of the time, you know, it only ends up being like a few hundred dollars to have purchased that camera because when you sell it again, you get a lot of that money back. And as opposed to, uh, well, I'll get into that story in a second, but, uh, but like when I made a purchase of it, that camera was really quite new. And it had depreciated a lot in value from the new price, the new sticker price from the in the store, in the camera store price to what it was when I bought it used. So uh, so it was a fantastic deal to, to kind of pick it up and, and find like a, a good one out there. Um, so, uh, so yeah, back in, what was it, back in September, I was hunting around in Oregon trying to find a good uh, 5D Mark III body. So I, I was trying to debate a little bit. I was looking around on eBay for 5D Mark III's that would be available, and I was looking around on KEH, and those are two locations that I had kind of made purchases from before when I was making a purchase online. Um, I like eBay, and I sold a bunch of stuff on eBay. I sold my A7R on eBay. I sold my D3 when I had made a, a per, I purchased the D3, I think, from KEH, and I sold the D3 on eBay and I made, made my money back. It was great. It worked pretty well. Uh, but uh, when I was looking around, I didn't really find the price point that I wanted for the 5D Mark III line. I think those were all running around 18 or 1900 bucks uh, for the 5D Mark III bodies that were being sold. But I'm sure, I don't know, it seemed like the market was a little lower than that at the time. And then when I looked on KEH, it was sort of the same story where uh, ones that were in bargain condition, you know, where they had been pretty beaten up or probably had been uh, the you know someone's wedding photography camera where it would really hammered out 100,000 or 200,000 frames already had a few seasons of weddings over the last couple of years and the person was trying to offload that gear and then, you know, on an upgrade to their, their 5D Mark IV or their 1DX or something like that. Um, so I kind of wanted to stay away from those uh, in a way. I'm sure they would have been functioning cameras in the way that they had been reported, but there's really no way to, like, get an observation of the camera and its function in your hand while you have it to see that it, it's really, like, as clean or as in, in good a condition as you'd want it to be uh, for something that you're going to spend $1,800 for. When I was buying used cameras, it was, you know, sub $1,000 purchases. So it was like, well, you know, it's got a couple scruffs on it or something like that but uh, but really they were always quite nice in in their physical condition um, so what I had ended up deciding to do was instead of making a purchase on eBay or on KEH what I decided to do was uh, try and check out uh, the the local marketplaces so I went on Craigslist to look at the the classified listings that were there in the the you know photo and video equipment for sale listing in my area and I kind of scoured across Oregon 
to find, you know, a couple good pieces. So I was trying to look in the Portland area. I was looking over in the Bend area. I was looking in the Eugene area. And I was also looking up into like the Seattle and Tacoma area as well. Cause I thought, well, you know, if I need to, then you know, I'll drive up a little ways and I might save hundreds of dollars trying to make a purchase for a nice camera system. So I thought that might be a good idea. Uh, and then in addition to Craigslist, I was also getting into the Facebook marketplace where I was selling a ton of my, uh, my stuff from my house when I was trying to set up this move over here to Maui. Um, so I was looking around at that. I was thinking, well, maybe I can check out and see if there's camera equipment that are also listed there too. And that actually worked out really well. I was, I was pretty impressed with it. So for the camera bodies, I found two uh, Canon 5D Mark III bodies. One of them I found over in Bend for $1,000 flat, which is an incredible deal. I, I think I think I got the upper hand on that one. It uh, it had been used, I think, for, for just like a single project that uh, that someone had. I think they, I don't know, but they have a business or they were paid to do it. So they, they, they made a purchase of a 5D Mark III and then they shot like a, a series of web instructional like instructional videos for youtube for a company that had purchased it and then they hadn't used that equipment in a while since then so they were going to sell that camera off and get some of their money back so i i got the camera for a thousand dollars even which uh, was fantastic it really barely even had uh like rub marks on it on the base of it you know like when you look at the, the camera body physically the rubber was in fantastic shape and the the base plate, like where the tripod would go, I think was the only area where there was a little bit of a scuff. But it was fantastic. It was really cool that uh, that, that had worked out so well for me. So I made a purchase of that camera for a thousand. Then I was looking around, and uh, I found another one up in the Portland area that a real estate agent had bought to take photographs of their property. And then I think they had found out that they didn't really want a 5D Mark III, but they wanted a Sony camera. And so they made a purchase of a Sony camera just a few months after that. And then to make up the cost of that purchase, they wanted to sell off the Canon 5D Mark III that they had. And so I saw it, and I got the box too, which was interesting. I got the, the box for the 5D Mark III, had the receipt from the camera store that they bought it for. It was you know $2,600 when they bought it maybe 12 months ago or 11 months ago. And I looked at the shutter count of it. There's maybe a 1,900 know, pictures had been taken on the camera body when I made a purchase of it. So it was really almost like a brand new camera. I think I was putting 1,000 frames on it a day at the, at the job that I had. So it, yeah, it was, I, I, I've, I've already put broken it in quite a bit more than it had been when I made a purchase of it. So it was really cool getting such a, a new camera for such a low price. So saving a few thousand dollars trying to put it, put the, you know, these, uh, these, this package of equipment together was excellent. And I was really happy to do that. Um, and that was one thing I noticed about the, the Canon used market is there's just, and this is sort of back to that thing. It's a bigger company and they're selling more cameras out there. So it was cool that, uh, there's just so much used gear out in the market. Whereas opposed to, you know, if I was looking for, I don't know, a D 800 on the Nikon side or, or a D four or something like that, it would be pretty hard to find those bodies, I guess in that condition or, you know, in that, in that way. And then for that price, it seemed like uh, and uh, same, same goes for like a, a Canon one DX. If I was trying to find that on the used market, those were really held by professionals or sports photographers. And those bodies were really be, and still very expensive when I was looking around for them. Um, but it seemed like there were so many people that were interested in doing wedding photography or doing photography as a hobby that they would kind of lean into the higher price range and pick up a 5D Mark III and then find out, well, you know, maybe I don't want it or, or maybe I want to switch over to a 5D Mark IV now. 
And so they were ditching those and offloading those for way lower prices. Uh, so it was an excellent time to, to kind of come in, pick those cameras up, and uh, and kind of start getting set up. But the other thing I noticed is that, okay, so now we have the, the 5D bodies. Now we're going to need lenses to work on these. So uh, what I was looking for was the, the USM, uh, well, what was it, the, the 24 to 70 f2.8 lenses that were for like the professional full frame cameras and i was fortunate to find those again on the facebook marketplace i think i had found one in the eugene area and i got a usm1 24 to 70 which was a great price and then i also found a usm2 24 to 70 that had been used more i definitely could tell that it had been used more this even though it was a newer version lens that it definitely had i think some more wear on it and that's that's probably the lens that though still works great still has great optical clarity but it's probably the one that that seems the most tired when i'm using it sometimes so uh i'm i don't know it's interesting sometimes but uh but i'm sure i probably put a ton of work on it too just kind of racking it back and forth trying to get all these different photographs that i was trying to shoot so uh i don't know I, lenses don't last forever and they're mechanical pieces uh but uh but these are really well built you know these uh, these professional l glass systems are, are really sturdy and well built and i was really impressed with how they were working so i had a, had a great time using it and uh, i didn't really seem to, to run into any problems while i was trying to produce uh produce photographs with it but I found, uh, yeah, I found one of them, one of the lenses in the Eugene area, and then I found another one up in Portland, and so I drove up to, to pick that lens up. And then I had, you know, I had two 5D Mark III's and two 24-70 to F2.8 lenses to throw on there to do a bunch of the family portrait stuff and a bunch of the, you know, kind of lifestyle images that I was trying to do. So it was a great starting setup for me to, to kind of get and then move out from. And uh, so I, I had been working with that for a couple months, and I've been trying to kind of expand from that. Uh, since then and so the the stuff that i'm looking for now um well so i started uh, looking into like uh some things for like real estate photography and one of the things that's always required for that stuff is uh is like a really wide angle lens uh so when i was looking around with the company that i was working with they were looking for images between 17 millimeters full frame and 20 millimeters on a full frame camera and so I, I went ahead and I purchased the the 17 to 40 millimeter f4 lens, which is actually really quite inexpensive. I mean, you know, or, and again, coming from like the Nikon side, when I thought, like, wow, that's going to be more than a thousand dollars to pick up uh, to pick up a lens for it. It, it was really a, a low price. I think it was about five hundred and twenty dollars to buy a new 17 to 40 millimeter. Uh, uh, lens that was like that, yeah, the F4 that I was talking about. So I picked that one up uh, to do some of the real estate photography, and that amortized pretty quickly. You know, getting to to use that for real estate jobs, it kind of paid for itself just in a couple jobs, along with how the the cameras themselves and the the 24 to 70 sort of paid for themselves by hammering out a bunch of family portrait sessions with them. Uh, so both of those things kind of worked out pretty well. But in addition to that, what I'm looking for is uh, like the 50 millimeter f1.4 lens i was looking at that too and I'm, I'm looking at those new because and this is sort of what i'm saying is it's just it seems like canon lens prices are sort of dropping down a bit I, I, maybe there's newer lenses and i know there's you know the there's way higher end lenses but uh, but the the 50 millimeter f1.4 uh kind of lower end lens perhaps is uh, i think 299 which is really super cheap like that's that's what i paid for a 35 millimeter 
DX lens on my uh, on my old camera system, you know, on the Nikon stuff. So, uh, so I was, or I think, uh, what was it like the the twenty eight millimeter f two lens I had for my Sony camera? That was like four hundred and fifty bucks when I bought it used, right? So uh, it was awesome to find uh, to find like that fifty millimeter f one four for two ninety nine, and then in addition to that, uh, for other portrait stuff, if I wanted to do it, I could pick up an eighty five millimeter f one eight for 299 also and i was like wow these are way more reasonable price ranges than uh, than what i thought so it's just really for for not that much i could probably put together a full range of prime lenses that i would want to use and i could put together a full range of uh, zoom lenses that i wanted to use that were all kind of higher end glass that uh, that would be great for you know professional stuff or or the lifestyle stuff or the you know whatever kind of photography stuff i wanted to expand into um, and then on the top of that, I was looking at the, though I would love an F2.8, uh, I was looking at the zoom lenses. And one thing I've kind of learned from this job that I was working with is, uh, is really when you're working with compression and, and like when you're working like with, with a zoom and you're com- using the compression of the lens past, you know, 70 millimeters, like into the 80 millimeter or hundred millimeter or out to 200 f2.8 is a is real soft and a lot of the time you especially if you're taking pictures of a couple people together and you're not trying to just rack right into to focus in on an eye and even when you're taking a picture a portrait of someone you really have to to kind of crank it up to f4 f5 to get a a depth of field that's thick enough to get their their nose their eyes and their ear in focus in the way that you'd need to and it seems like well you know like i've loved super shallow depth of field but it seems like you want to get the person in focus, so you got to get a few parts of them in focus. Um, I remember taking self portraits of my, uh, you know, like I, I'd hold the camera out in front of me with a with the Canon fifty millimeter one eight, and I'd try and take a picture of Marina and I somewhere. And I remember Marina would be just just on the plane in front of me, you know, because we we're trying to stand right next to each other, and maybe I would be in focus. But then Marina, just one or two inches in front of my nose, would be completely out of focus. It would look just like a super blurry kind of washed area because the depth of field was so shallow. And so that's where I was trying to, you know, kind of finally learning like, oh, yeah, okay, so maybe F1.8 isn't absolutely what you have to have for every photograph that you take or F1.4 or whatever it might be. Um, so I was, I was kind of finding that part out where, okay, well, I'm going to have to rack this out to like F5 or F8 anyway to get a sharp photograph of the thing that I'm trying to get an image of. Uh, so I have kind of rounded out that I'm going to be fine for a lot of the landscape photography that I'm interested in doing. I'm going to be fine kind of jumping into lenses that are around that F4 line. So I was looking at um, the, the USM 70 to 200 F4 lens that they have. And so I think it's, I think that the 2.8, the F2.8 lens that's 70 to 200 is like around 1500 bucks. But the, the F4 is about 600 bucks. I think it's like 599 to pick up a 70 to 200 USM lens. Now it doesn't have the image stabilization on Nikon. They call it vibration reduction. Is that right? But it doesn't have the image stabilization. And I think it is probably lacking some other, some other additional feature. Cause I know there's two versions after that, that escalate in price quite a bit. But if you're looking for that older one, it's still available on Amazon. For five ninety nine, which is a great price, if you want to get a seventy to two hundred, I think that was really cool. And there's a lot of things you could do with it. Again, like I was saying, with the compression, if you're going out to to one hundred and twenty five millimeters and you're shooting at f four, 
that's going to give you a really nice bokeh in the background and you're going to get the person in, in focus if you need to if you're shooting a portrait and if you're shooting some kind of landscape or wildlife scene you're going to be able to do a lot with that too you're, you know you're just going to have a lot of flexibility in what you're able to do i love fast lenses i'd really like to always push for you know two weight or f 1.2 or something like that uh, but uh, but i'm loving the fact that there's an opportunity for me to get a whole range of focal lengths as i'm trying to transition over into new gear um, for a much, much lower price than what I was expecting. So I think that's all pretty cool. I'm, I've been pretty happy with uh, this transition over into Canon equipment so far. And it's been, it's been interesting. You know, the, the thing that I'm, I'm... Thanks a lot for checking out this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Hope you guys check out some stuff on billynewmanphoto.com. A few new things up there. Some stuff on the homepage. Some good links to other other outbound sources, some, some links to books, some links to some podcasts, links to some blog posts, all pretty cool. But yeah, check it out at billynewmanaphoto.com. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the podcast. Talk to you next time.